Well, it's been quite a winter, hasn't it? Have you seen the potholes up on Highway 96, anybody? If you haven't, it might be worth your time just to take a detour going home and look at them. Uh, it's sort of like an amusement park ride. A lot of similarities. I suppose they'll be filling them up one of these days, but it concerns me because uh, I just hope the workmen are sure all the cars are out of the potholes before they fill them. I don't know what these things are that hang on the back of cars in the snowy weather. You know, behind the wheel, right on the mud flap, slush lumps, maybe we ought to create a word for them. Doesn't it give you a wonderful sense of power to be able to kick those things? <laughs> My wife sat out here in the parking lot a couple of weeks ago and watched people come out of church and kick them. Leave them in the parking lot. It just gives you a little bit of, of power, doesn't it, over winter. A little bit of revenge, just a way to show winter what you think of it, to be able to kick those things off your car. Well, we're going to leave winter behind and go many miles to Greece as we read these words, because Corinth was located, of course, in ancient Greece. Its citizens prided themselves in their intellectual heritage. They, of course, prided themselves in people like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, people like Zeno and Epicurus. All of these great ancient thinkers were Greeks. For hundreds of years, they had this tradition of people who were philosophers. The Greeks loved speculation, logic, and argumentation. John MacArthur writes that the Greeks had perhaps 50 philosophical parties or movements, 50 of them. And each one of them had its own answers to the questions of life. Who am I? Where did I come from? And what is life all about? Exploring those kinds of deep questions, the Greeks developed sometimes very complex systems of thinking, outlining what they thought the order of society ought to be, or how people ought to relate to one another or to the gods. And the Greeks had their favorite teachers or thinkers and divided themselves in their loyalty to them. But inevitably, these human philosophies led to error. Inevitably. In Romans chapter 1, it gives us the decay of a pagan civilization. I believe that that chapter is really written about the generation before the flood. But it applies really to every civilization without God that turns itself from God. It says, For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And so it was with the Greek civilization, and so it is with the Western civilization of today. 
because they turned from God, they therefore had no transcendent objective way of measuring what is right and wrong, what is true and what is false. Their conclusions, though very complex and humanly wise, were based merely upon human opinion and were therefore often contradictory. Now the spirit of this Greek culture in which these Corinthian Christians lived stuck with them after they believed. Some of the spirit and the values of that culture stuck with them. And like their pagan neighbors, they were prone to divide themselves over teachers and preachers and form factions that were based upon their own choices. Paul has talked to them about that already. We're going to pick it up in verse 18 in our reading. For he says, The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. These Corinthians still had an ear for clever words and for sharp arguments of philosophy. Paul warns them in verse 17 about the wisdom of words, which if mixed with the message of the cross makes the gospel, he says, void or empty, or it neutralizes it. What he's saying is that the gospel is not intended as a philosophical system to appeal to the intellect. Not, in, not at all. The gospel, on the other hand, is the way of salvation meant to appeal to the human heart. Therefore, to base the message of the gospel on human argumentation or to blend with it clever speaking that is based on human reasoning is to rob the gospel of its essential power. Now Paul is now going to explain why in the paragraph we've read. In doing so, he warns that faith must be based upon God's wisdom, not man's. 
you will notice in this paragraph that he holds up two wisdoms. God's wisdom and man's wisdom. And he says that faith that saves the soul must be based upon God's wisdom, not man's. Now these dear people in Corinth had trusted Christ and his redemptive work on the cross, but uh, they still wanted somehow to hang on to human reason and human wisdom. So Paul is telling them that to do that nullifies the cross message and it subverts the glory of God. God's wisdom, he says, and man's wisdom cannot coexist. The two are mutually exclusive. Now he goes on to explain that. First of all, he says, he talks about the contrasting content of the two wisdoms. The contrasting content of the two wisdoms. Human wisdom represents any number of ideations or schemes of thinking that exalt human discovery and human rationalism over divine revelation. Human wisdom is a broad term. It represents a lot of different human ideas. These human ideas or understandings become worldviews. And those who follow these ideas measure reality according to these human ideas or worldviews. Let me just quickly throw out three that are very prominent in our world. The one that has controlled the Western civilization for the last number of decades is naturalism or evolution. Naturalism precludes anything supernatural. Prima facie, it rules out the possibility of a divine being of God. There is no supernatural in naturalism. Reality is based upon chance and the survival of the fittest. Life has no ultimate meaning to the naturalist. The goal that a naturalist works for is some sort of globalism and world government for the good of man and the protection of the environment. That's naturalism. A somewhat similar but yet different worldview is that of materialism. Now it's similar in that materialists preclude anything supernatural. Reality is found in what is material. There is no spiritual. Marxism is an example of a materialistic worldview. Life has meaning only in things. And the goal of the materialist is a new world order that is based upon socialism. There is a third worldview or human philosophy that is becoming more prominent. And you see it creeping into the Western civilization. Creeping in is the wrong way to say it. You see it flooding into the Western civilization. It's what I would term mystical spiritualism. Those who believe in this worldview accept the supernatural. 
They know that there is more than what can be seen and felt. But they do not believe in a personal sovereign God. To those who believe in this mystical spiritualism, reality is found in connecting to the spiritual through some sort of a mystical experience. Whether that spirit will be found within oneself, or if it be found in tapping into some other dimension, calling upon an angel, or someone who's supposed to be from a former life to come and be a channel. These people believe that reality is found in tapping into the spiritual through a mystical experience. The meaning of life to these people is in found in becoming one with God, small g, however that might be defined. And the goal, really, of these people can go one of two directions. There are those who would believe that the goal is reincarnation into some sort of higher existence. And then there are others who believe that the real goal is found in entering a new age of human harmony. Thus we get the term new age. The St. Paul newspaper last weekend had an amazing article regarding how this kind of mystical spiritualism is being accepted in the medical community. One of our local hospitals is developing a program to incorporate, quote, alternative healings, which embraces this very worldview that I've just described to you. And you need to know that all of these wisdoms these human philosophies I just described contradict with God's wisdom. James has this comment to make about them. James 3, verses 15 and 16. This wisdom, human wisdom, is not that which comes down from above. It doesn't come from God. But he says it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. And then he goes on to say, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Isn't it interesting that James ties together disorder and evil living with these kinds of human philosophies? Now we see that in our world, but the reason I pointed out is that in Corinth they were embracing this human wisdom along with the gospel and it brought strife and dissension and disorder and factions to their church. So James and Paul agree regarding that. And so on the one hand we have human wisdom. The content of it is various, but all of human thinking, all of human philosophical discovery falls under this label of human wisdom that does not come down from above, it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. On the other hand, there's God's wisdom. God's wisdom which centers on the eternal reality of a personal, sovereign God who has entered the world in Jesus Christ through the Incarnation. 
and who suffered and died on the cross as a propitiation for human sin, that is to satisfy God's justice, and who was raised from the dead as the victor over sin, death, and Satan. That, my friend, is God's wisdom. God's wisdom is his own self-disclosure. It is God telling us about himself, about our world, about ourselves, in the Bible. God's wisdom is the wisdom that comes down from above and God himself telling us who we are, why we are here, and what the end or the purpose of all things is. To put it very succinctly, as Paul does here, God's wisdom can be boiled down to two words. Christ crucified. That is the wisdom of God. Christ crucified. The revelation of God. Man's wisdom is his own self-discovery. Man's wisdom is his own rationalization. Man's wisdom is his own experience. God's wisdom is what he has revealed to us in Jesus Christ and in this written word, the Bible. Therefore, the contrasting content of the two wisdoms. But secondly, I invite you to look with me at the conflicting appraisal of the two wisdoms. In this paragraph, you see humans appraising God's wisdom, and you see God appraising human wisdom. Lost pagan people judge God's wisdom in Christ as foolishness. Verse 18, again in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, he says, to the Gentiles or to the Greeks, foolishness. This word means moronic. You see, the pagan looks for wisdom that meets his definition of what is logical and what is reasonable. And when he hears that real wisdom is found outside of man, that is found in God, and when he hears that this God came into this world as a human being and died on behalf of all men to pay the price of sin, he says, come on. <laughs> You know, fairy tales are for children. That is too simple. It is simplistic. He says that is for half-wits. That just doesn't make sense to me. It's too uncomplicated. It's just too easy that one person would die for the sins of the whole race. And joining in with the lost pagan is the lost Jew, who, it says in verse 23, regards God's wisdom as a stumbling block. 
Christ crucified to the Jew is a stumbling block. Why is that? Because the Jew seeks for a sign. He wants some demonstration, some proof of Messiahship. And certainly, that could not be in being crucified. Messiah is going to put down the armies of Rome. Messiah is going to overthrow the oppressors of the Jewish people and exalt Israel and rule from Jerusalem over the nations. To think that Christ, the Messiah, would be crucified is a stumbling block. And you know what it really boils down to? The real problem with God's wisdom to man is that God's wisdom assails his pride. God's wisdom assaults human ego because human ego likes to think that man is sufficient, that man is able to find his own way, that man is able to discover for himself what is true and what is false, and he doesn't really need God. That's the real problem with God's wisdom to the human. God's, God, on the other hand, makes man's wisdom foolish. According to verse 20, the last question there says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? That's God's appraisal of man's wisdom. What this means is that God shows human wisdom for what it is that it's part of man's problem, not part of the solution to his condition. And God condemns human wisdom as ineffective in eliminating man's problems. In fact, he quotes from Isaiah 29, verse 14, in our verse 19 here. Back in that context, Isaiah was told not to be fearful because the military strategy that King Hezekiah and his wise men had put together to protect Judah from Assyria would fail. And God is reassuring Isaiah not to be worried about that, but he says, I will destroy the wisdom of these wise men who are surrounding King Hezekiah. And I will deliver my people myself and show them my power. But in doing so, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. Now, quoting that verse, the apostle then asks several rhetorical questions. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the wise man? Paul may have had in mind here the Greek philosophers that many of these people nearly worshipped. But then he says, where is the scribe? And here Paul may have, in, may have had in mind the Jewish experts in their law. He says, where is the debater of this age? Where is the debater of this age? These could be Jews or Gentiles who love to argue. Now Paul is mocking them. He is mocking them because they are not there to give an answer as to why man is still in the condition that he's in. They have offered their best, 
and their best didn't work. So he says, where are these worldly wise people? With all of their complex thoughts and philosophies, what good have they done? Because man is still embroiled in the same problem. And then Paul asks this question, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer is yes, he has. For he has allowed the fruit of human wisdom to become evident. And that fruit is further decay and division and estrangement among men. God declares man's wisdom as foolishness. That's his appraisal. Now why? Because human wisdom inevitably leaves out God and his revelation. And it is God's revelation that provides the very answers that man is seeking. Who am I? How did I get here? And what is life about? You close the Bible and set it aside and look in any other direction and you come to foolishness. Now, having looked at the contrasting content of the two wisdoms and the conflicting appraisals because each calls the others foolish, let's examine the contrary outcome of the two wisdoms. Consider with me first the tragic outcome of man's wisdom. Man's wisdom does not help temporally or eternally. Now, when I talk about man's wisdom, I want to just step back for a moment and make it clear to you that I am not talking about intellectual pursuits and scientific investigations and achievements that have helped all of us. When I talk about human wisdom, I am not talking about the progress that we've made in medicine or in agriculture or technology or manufacturing or any of the other areas that all of us benefit from. What I'm talking about, rather, is the philosophical wisdom that forms the world's beliefs and its values and its objectives. That's what I'm talking about by human wisdom. Man's philosophies has, have failed to create a utopian society. Man's wisdom has failed to create a better human being. In fact, it's just the opposite. We can ask like Paul did in that day, where are all the smart people in our world, the, the elite of our society, the wise intellects who have claimed to have had all of the answers? Where are they? Where are these ones who for years have told us, for example, that if we just spend more on education without God, that it would produce the best educational system in the world? that if we just spend more on education without God, we will have better people who will be able to compete in a global society. In fact, what is happening to the education system of America since we shut God out 35, 40 years ago? It has done nothing but go that direction. It has declined, and it will continue to do that. 
But where are these people who for years have claimed, just spend more money in education, you'll get the product you want? Where are those who have told us that if we just have more sex education in the schools, we will solve teenage pregnancy and reduce sexual activity and STDs, sexually transmitted diseases? Sexual activity is on the increase. There are more STDs today than ever before. It's estimated that one-fifth of all Americans have a, a sexually transmitted disease. Well, where are all these philosophers who say, well, all you have to do is teach people the facts. It hasn't worked. Where are the social planners who told us if only we would spend massive amounts of money on government programs, we would end poverty? Where are the wise people of the 1960s who told us if we would just do that, we would have a great society? We're seeing now that their so-called great society is not so great after all. By the way, do you know what the most dangerous place in America is? The most dangerous place in America? It's not living next to some atomic energy facility. The most dangerous place in America is not even, is not even the inner city in some gang neighborhood. The most dangerous place in America today is in the university classroom, where you have these same human wisdoms that have proven to be failures taught over and over and over again to our students. That's the most dangerous place in America. Where are the politicians, the judges, and the bureaucrats who asserted a few years ago that Busing school students would end discrimination and improve education. Where are they? Where are the smart people who just a few years ago told us if we would have affirmative action, we would end racism in America? I submit to you that there is more racism in America today than there ever has been. More deep feelings about racial and ethnic divisions today after affirmative action. Where are those who claim that we could educate and rehabilitate violent criminals and reduce crime, reduce our prison populations? We have more people in prison today than we've ever had in prison. It hasn't worked. Where are these social engineers, these great society politicians, these educational reformers, who have used our society for their experiments of worldly wisdom and have brought upon us our present societal tragedy. My point is this. Many of these people have been sincere. I'm not mocking them for that. But I mock them because their ideas are wrong. They produce no lasting good. And yet today we have people who are pressing for the legalization of drugs, for homosexual marriage, for throwing more money into failed government programs, all of which are rooted in man's corrupt and unreliable thinking. 
But that's not the worst of it. That's not the worst of it. The worst of the outcome of human wisdom is found first in verse 21. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. The greater tragedy of human wisdom is that it does not bring anyone into a relationship with God. Now God in his wisdom established it that way so that man cannot be truly independent of God and self-sufficient. And going with that is what is said in verse 18, that man's wisdom leaves its inheritance in a state of perishing. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. Those who follow human wisdom say the cross is foolishness and they continue to be eternally ruined. They live in a perpetual acute state needing rescue. That's the outcome of human wisdom. And God allows human wisdom to bear its fruit so that we can all see how foolish it is. One of the philosophers that have greatly affected America and the Western civilization is the German Friedrich Schleiermacher. He is sometimes called the father of liberalism, theological liberalism in particular. The story is told that one day he was sitting as an old man on a city park bench and a policeman, thinking this old man to be a vagrant, went over to him and shook him and said, Who are you? And this wise one of the world answered honestly and said, I wish I knew. That's human wisdom, friend. And that's where it leads, to despair and to lostness in the end. What about the outcome of God's wisdom? I have good news. God's wisdom is just the opposite. It is the power of God to save men from perishing. That is, those who believe, verse 21, those who place their faith in it, those who turn away from human wisdom and embrace the cross, for them the message of that cross is the power of salvation. These are the ones, it says in verse 24, who are the called. That is, those that God calls out of human lostness to embrace the cross. He's going to talk more about that and we'll it, we'll uh, get into that next week, what it means to be the called. But let me just leave it at that point this morning. It may be that you are here and you have embraced human wisdom in the past and you sense in your heart the calling of God to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Believe on Him and you will know the power of God to save. God's wisdom produces results that are definite, and lasting because it brings about a relationship with God that human searching can never achieve. 
That's why Paul said to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew as well as to the Greek. And I can tell you that wherever the principles of God's revelation have been heeded has resulted also in man's temporal good. You go back and you trace the great universities of this country and they nearly all go back to men who founded them in order to proclaim the glory of God and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about Harvard and Yale, etc., etc. They are far from their roots today. Go back and look at who brought the hospitals, who brings the healing to the world. It's not the human wisdom. It is those who bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are those who are delivering the pagan people from their terrors and from the abuse of their lives and the oppression that they feel? It's not the humanist anthropologists. It is the missionaries who are bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ who are delivering them from their darkness. Wherever God's revelation has been heeded, it has resulted not only in eternal good, but temporal good. A human wisdom can offer ideas and opinions. It may even occasionally help diagnose the human condition. It may suggest solutions. But the problem with human wisdom is this. It has a fatal weakness. And that is it cannot change the human heart. It can go to a neighborhood and say the problem here is poverty. Well, that's partly true. It can say we need to infuse lots of money into this neighborhood. Is that the solution? It can look at our society and say this society is racist. And what we need to do is to order this change or that change by government decree. Is that the solution? No. You see, all of these things come back to the human heart. Human wisdom, for whatever label on it you want to, is incapable of changing a person's nature. It cannot deal with the depravity of the heart. And that's why Paul concludes, as he does in verse 25, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the so-called weakness of God is stronger than men. Because Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It seems like foolishness and weakness to man, but man cannot transcend it. That's why you and I can say with Paul that we never need to be embarrassed by the gospel. We never need to be ashamed of the cross. We never need to wonder if the world is right. All we have to do is look around. John MacArthur says the simplicity of the gospel gives the complexity of human reason promises, what the complexity of human reason promises, but it never delivers. When we come down in the world's eyes to the cross, God will raise us up to eternal life. I like those words that come out of the song El Shaddai that say, 
God's most mighty work was done through the, what? Anybody know? The frailty of the Son. The weakness of Christ crucified. God's most mighty work. And we sing, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So I close with this final and crucial question for you. Which wisdom forms the choices of your life? God's wisdom or man's wisdom? In what have you chosen to trust for your salvation? Man's wisdom? Man's way? There are many ways that seem right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. There was a company owner a number of years ago now who wanted somehow to illustrate to his employees the gospel. He was a Christian. He he looked for ways to do this, and so one, one day, he put out a notice to his many employees, and he said, any employee who comes to my office on such and such a date between 11 and 12 o'clock in the morning and brings to me a list of his indebtedness and its total, I will pay it for him. And so on that day, as 11 o'clock began to come around, his employees gathered in the street around the place where the man's office was. None of them had prepared anything. They were talking about the offer and whether he meant it or not and would anybody be foolish enough to believe it anyway. And 11 o'clock came and nobody entered the door. 11.15, 11.30, 11.45, and finally one man dashed out of the crowd with the paper in his hand and ran in through the door. And he went into the man's office. He put down the paper, and he said, Is this a list of all your debts? He said, Yes, it is. And his employer immediately pulled out his checkbook and wrote him a check for the whole amount. He said, because you have believed my promise, I deliver you of your debt. And he was the only one out of all the employees that had the nerve to believe what the employer had promised. In Jesus Christ crucified, God has made the provision available for the sins of all men. But it is only those who believe, who claim the promise, who will be saved. And the rest will go on perishing. Which wisdom are you trusting for your salvation? And if you are saved, which wisdom is it that you are looking toward for your life? Listen to the wisdom in our music today. How much of it is God's wisdom? And yet that's what we allow to come into our minds and wash over our hearts all the time. Who do you go to for counsel? Do you go to your friend whose life is already in ruins? 
and expect him or her to give you counsel that's going to be godly? Or do you go to the Bible? Do you go to someone who's a godly person and say, help me see what the issues of my life are? Whose wisdom are you listening to? Are you listening to the talk shows on television? God help you. Are you listening to the radio talk shows and hoping to find there some human wisdom to direct your life? You will surely end up wrecked. Whose wisdom forms the choices of your life? That's what Paul wants you to answer today. Because your life depends upon it. And maybe your eternity. Let's pray. In just a moment, we're going to sing a closing hymn. And as we sing, I'm going to invite anyone who... to have prayer with me to come forward. We're going to form a little prayer circle after others have been dismissed and pray. I, I don't know what your issue may be. It may be that you need to be saved, that you've not trusted the gospel. Or it may be that as a Christian you've been listening to bad counsel and God's put his finger upon it this morning and you know that and you want to come just to pray and to turn away from that worldly counsel. As we sing 471 in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come and as I say, we'll have a prayer of dismissal and then those who come can pray with me. Lord, I pray that today, having heard this message, none of us will trust in human wisdom for the direction of our lives or the salvation of our souls. But may we see the life-changing power of the gospel of Christ crucified and trust in him alone. Purify our lives where we have trusted in man's thinking. Show us where we have erred and bring us back to trusting what you have said alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 471 says, The way of Christ crucified leads home. And I invite you to sing with me at least the first verse and chorus of 471. Please slip out quickly if God is laying it on your heart to come for prayer. Let's stand, please. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. I shall never get sight of the gates of life if the way of the cross I miss. The way of the cross leads home. The way Chorus, please. The way.
curious before we go how many of you think that perhaps there's a possibility that your thinking has been tainted a little bit by human wisdom would you lift your hand lots of honest people all of us have been affected by it and that's why it's so important for us to be in the word to allow the word to cleanse our minds of the the kinds of human wisdom that we pick up in so very many different ways so this week let's ask God to show us where we are thinking wrongly because that thinking wrongly will lead us to behave wrongly let's ask God to get our minds focused on Jesus and on the truth of God now Lord may it be so as we go our ways and to that end I pray your blessing upon this entire congregation that we may think Christianly that we may think of Christ crucified the wisdom and the power of God. Amen.